Lead from the Side is made possible thanks to our incredible sponsors. Hi, I'm Spencer Casimir, and this is Lead from the Side. Back in March, I had the opportunity to sit down with Roy Masters and Frank Panisi. Roy is best known as being a super coach of rugby league associated with West Magpies and St. George Dragons. Frank is best known for his now 16-year role as GM of the Melbourne Storm. We really got to go into specifics having to do with leadership and overcoming difficulties in a market that's traditionally Australian rules, as well as the future of the game. I had a lot of fun with these guys hearing their insights, and I know you will as well. So um, let's get into this. Uh, We're here to talk business, but we can't not talk about last week's kickoff of the NRL season. Uh, Craig Bellamy's 500th game is this week as well. But let's start off with the six again rule. How's the season looking? Well, only on the first or second tackle. I think it's being um, adjudicated indiscriminately. It all comes down to the whim of the referee. Even in games, they can change. There was a game last Sunday between Parramatta and the Gold Coast Titans. There were nearly 50 points scored in the first half, whereas the second half, the game completely shut off. I think it's going to take a while, hopefully, for that sooner rather than later to get some consistency, as Roy says. It seems that it could be very effective, having watched it in the last, not just last round, but leading up to it. I'm hoping they can sharpen it up a bit. Anything else that you guys picked up in the first round and... Any guesses? Because last week it was pretty tough for Storm uh, in terms of players. You were down to 15 at one point, correct? Yeah. As you said before, Spencer, Craig, that was his 499th game. So when he says after the game, that he does cannot remember a more brave a performance. That's quite a statement to make, but he's correct. To lose one of your best players in the very first 60 seconds of the game, then to lose a winger, again, and people say oh, it's only a winger, but A, the devastation of losing a player, you know, for the season, but also then our whole balance of our team, we moved the second row to a centre, centre to a winger, and then we lost another replacement. Really, we had no right to win that game, but typical Craig Bellamy teams just found a way to win. And, and let's not forget that on the bench there were three players... Uh, who had uh, never played an NRL match before. So it was an incredible performance, and let's not forget it was away from home uh, against a team that was desperate to rattle up a first win to take some of the pressure off a besieged coach. So we've gone through so much this week. What are we looking at next week even? I mean, this is a long season right now. This was a team, West, that needed a win, and now it's Rabbitohs, which are grand finalists for last year. We've got a lot of emotion in this game. It's obviously, it's our first home game in 321 days. The fact that we're returning home is a big occasion and then you throw, of course, Craig Bellamy's 500th and it's going to be a big occasion on on tomorrow night. Actually, with milestones, I have noticed, Frank, um, we might delve into the psychological aspects here, that there was a period when we lost milestone games only a couple of years ago, wasn't it? It's, it's, it's been a cycle, actually, Roy. It's a, it's a fair point you make. We, we used to nearly be unbeatable on milestone occasions. The whole emotion, you know, Roy's probably best answer this. I mean, it's, it's, it's another topic in itself is how far you take your players to that emotional edge because there is an edge. There's no doubt about it. We were victims and reciprocants last year of the Penrith Panthers. I mean, they, they had bottled up that revenge from 12 months earlier. And um, I've never seen them play so inspired. Um, and it was personal. You know, they, they were a team that were after redemption. 
And I actually would... I, I, th- I thought South were going to beat him in the grand final the week after. And they nearly were beaten. I suppose if they had Latrell Mitchell, they just lacked, lacked that axe factor South. But, yeah, they certainly beat us on, on emotion last year. There's no doubt about that. And, and that is a huge, huge aspect. Thinking more holistically about the game's growth, rugby league's growth as a whole, this is broad brush, it's not everywhere, but there feels to be this, we still have to not be rugby union. And my feeling is that's hurting our growth. You're talking about the international growth of the game? Yeah, international. I'm not too sure. Look, obviously, I think that we've got to remember rugby league has always been strong in the north of England and, and east coast of Australia, and that's the traditions, and, and we'll, we'll never change that. I think, the, you know, I think the game is still very strong in this parts of the world. I'm a little bit concerned in, in England where the game is, and I think that that's... Uh, I, I hear that it's picking up again in France, which, which is a good sign. But I, I think realistically, to me, you've got to make sure that our, our base here is as strong as possible. One problem I see coming uh, is the World Cup after this one, which would therefore be 2026. Uh, we have teams from Fiji, uh, Samoa, Tonga uh, playing. But do you realise that in that particular year, 2026, not one of those players in those three teams, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji will have been born in those countries. They will have all been born in Australia. So there is debate going on right now, I think globally in sport, as to what is an authentic relationship to a nation uh, and what's best for the growth of the game. We're in the business of winning games but growing the sport too. Uh, they are two separate hats. Well, again, using on Roy's uh, point there about where players are born, now rugby union fly their World Cup flag quite proudly and it's a big event you go through all the rugby nations there's i don't think of any team that has got all their players that are born in that country but it's a good business point because to grow the game internationally do you take the american football approach where you promote the game have the the nfl heavily around the world so people want to watch the nfl and then that might attract them to potentially playing in our game do we promote the nrl competition get it on tv around the world as much as we can which then may relate refer more kids playing or do you start from the bottom up it's an interesting question is because I've told him a few times I came across Rugby League and actually Rugby Union and Aussie Rules because I was just 16 flipping through late night channels on a Thursday and that's actually what got me so interested. Exposure. Mark Evans and I have talked about this a few times that yes, you do need grassroots movements but in the US, last time I checked, we've never even asked or cared about where you're from as long as you're the best person we can hire you for the team. Well, I can remember coming back to South Africa again um, that uh, I was talking to a, uh, a springbok over there who happened to wander into one of the pubs where Frank and I were having a beer, and he said he watched he watched avidly the Winfield Cup, which was the rugby league competition in Sydney at the time. Um, <clears throat> but I think that within a few short years, um, somehow or other, the Winfield Cup didn't get shown in South Africa, and the game just died. Every year, uh, the rugby league broadcast contract is renegotiated. Uh, News Corp, based in the United States, make these grandiose promises to promote the game in the United States, <laughs> and it really ever happens. I, I, I do remember the same time last year, um, the, they were putting AFL games ahead of uh, the NRL games, uh, um, 
and yet um, the the rights uh, were held by Fox. So I want to get more into now about you guys and your careers. I want to talk about two things. One, coming back from the salary cap and still being the winningest team in the modern era. And Roy, for you, you, you've already picked yours. Just reflect a bit on what's gone on since you've experienced them and how that would be dealt with today as well. Frank, the floor is yours. Well, yeah, um, for the 2010 salary cap obviously was um, professionally the greatest challenge that I've been involved in and, and certainly this club has. It's um, What got us through was what happened beforehand. The, the club was built on very, very strong foundations, built on hard work, a real obsession to be better every year, every week, every game. It wasn't inflated salaries that took us over the salary cap. So I think that inner self-belief knowing that whilst the wrong thing was done in terms of from a financial point of view, that wasn't the reason for our success. You know, through Craig's leadership, we made it clear early, it doesn't matter what we said to, because people weren't going to believe us. It was through our actions. Going forward, we just continued that. And, and, and so there wasn't a major change in what we were doing in terms of our training, our beliefs, our methods. That didn't change. So how do you shift gears then from coming out of that, we'll call it semi-siege mentality, to prove to the world that your performance is about the character and skill and the abilities of the club? How do you then maintain the success? Well, two things. One, a very strong connection to the people that support this football club. These people are going to come every week, regardless that our win won't give us two points on the table. So we owe it to them to perform to our best regardless if you get two points or not. And the other point that Roy alluded to before, after the first few weeks, where it was our structure had gone out the window. We were, we were playing on emotion and that siege mentality. But then we lost the game and then Craig just put him in the room and drew the line in the sand and said, this has got to stop. The other point I'd like to cut in here on um, how the Storm managed this uh, very, very unfair, brutal punishment was that there is a bit of a psychology in rugby league that uh, you, you give a dog a bad name and it sticks. Um, I'll, I'll give you a classic example. Um, when Cronulla got done for the drugs at the same time as Essendon did the supplements, uh, the Essendon people just sort of exploded with anger. And, you know, how dare you say this? Cronulla, OK. You're going to call us drug cheats, OK. So reputational damage isn't as severe in rugby league as it is in other sports because they've always called us the bloody working class, you know, thugs. Um, they've called us, um, you know, uh, mongrels. I'm talking about 100 years of, of, of upper-class people in Australia calling us thugby league. It's an interesting point Roy makes in it. One of the most fascinating things I've found about living here in Melbourne, I'd love a dollar for every person who said this to me, I don't really like rugby league, I don't like NRL, but I love the Melbourne Storm. And you're thinking, well, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, so there is, Roy's right, there is definitely that stigma about rugby league and somehow we've kind of risen above that. Just to finish up on 2010, I think the other massive thing that was done by Craig in 2010 Craig was getting a lot of pressure from above, from his own assistant coaches, to start blooding young players during the 2010 season. We're going to finish last this year. Just just blood them. Just give them opportunities. Um, let's get them ready for next year. 
and Craig absolutely dug his heels in, that he basically said, I've never given away a Melbourne jersey in my eight years. I'm not going to start now. And and he, he says it today, and I totally agree with him, it was a massive decision that helped us get through 2010 and set up success for the next decade. You know, it's interesting because when I held up the paper to point, uh, you saw that I had written down Melbourne culture as well. Is there a difference in working down here where there isn't as much, as you were saying at least, the fan uh, adulation that you'd get in Sydney, really? Um, Is that an asset being down here in Melbourne? Frank made the point, you know, that people love the Storm but they don't like rugby league. I think that's largely because of the very high standards of off-field behaviour that we've seen with the Melbourne Storm. Melbourne does pride itself on being a little bit more um, socially sort of appropriate. And I think there has always been in Melbourne a little bit of a veneer of uh, we are slightly more sophisticated. And the Storm have similarly been demonstrated to be slightly more sophisticated than the rest of the, some of the Sydney teams. Yeah, and we certainly played on the back of that being a Melbourne team. Um, There is an enormous rivalry between New South Wales and Victoria and Sydney and and, and Melbourne. Just with our State of Origin series, it's um, a double red. We've we've had a predominantly strong amount of Queenslanders play for the club, but when the games have been brought down here, very successfully, might I add, the State of Origin, whether it's the MCG or we used to be at Etihad, is... Uh, they're supposed to be neutral games, but the vast majority of the fans are cheering for Queensland. So it's very 80-20 in terms of the Queenslanders. So I think that's a combination of us having a lot of Queensland players, but also that rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne, I think. And, and we, we, you know, we've, we've utilised that because you know, the, the Melbourne public get around us because we're Melbourne's team. Um, so, you know what, we've, we've spent enough time, I think, on the hurdles. Let, let's talk about the innovations going on in the club, in the league, in the sport. Uh, what are we seeing on the field, but also off the field? I was only talking about this the other night is, you know, I think some coaches and some people just innovate for the sake of innovating. You know, what's, what's new? Let's go and get the, the latest craze out there. But why? And I think that's one of being Craig's strengths and what we do well here is if we, we are going to change a particular way we do things or introduce something new, why are we doing it? Will it make us better? Um, so, the innov- so innovation is, a, is important because we need to evolve, but I'm always aware of just coaches just adding new things for the sake of adding new things. We seem to be just putting solving problems rather than really trying to innovate, in my mind. Massive. I think that the conversation we should be having is more how do we confront and solve some of the coming problems rather than the perhaps innovations. Who is responsible for development, junior development in the state? The other one, Roy, which is very, very strongly connected, certainly in terms of retention of kids playing, is coaching. Exactly what answered Roy's question. I think we've got them to decide first before we do anything because at the moment I think we're, we're half-hearted. We're, and then sometimes when you're half-hearted, you're thinking, well, it's up to the league to do it. No, it's up to the clubs and, and no-one does it. So we've got to make a decision. Well, yeah, it, it is a, uh, it's a significant problem. And, and Frank, at the NRL level, in terms of the coaching, to some extent the clubs are, are frustrating the opportunity of young coaches to progress. What does succession look like? in rugby league and coaching and GM roles and all of these other things, how do we make sure that we don't, as a club, as an organisation, lose that step? 
it's interesting when you know, and, and Roy know this better than me. When board boards and clubs, I hear chairman saying, "We're looking for a new coach. We're going to go and get the best coach." I, I don't understand that. A, who's the best coach, and how do you define the best coach? Because every club is different. I believe when Craig does leave, we need a coach to continue the legacy, but also start bringing his new new ideas to make that even better, rather than getting a coach to come in who's just basically going to start from scratch because that's not required here. Yeah. Well, Billy Slater, for example, would be an ideal future coach here and he's having some experience with State of Origin this year with Queensland as head coach uh, and he, for, he he's that perfect mix of a person who was a brilliant player but also was, as a player, very, very willing to study the videos and prepare. Some of the great instinctive players of, of our 100 years just made failures as coaches because they wouldn't put the effort into the preparation. They just just considered that players, uh, why can't you do what I used to do? You know. I, I think one thing we've done well over the years, you know, it's been by design, not, not by accident, We've recruited ex-Melbourne Storm people, players, into roles of coaches, into uh, administration, and so you can pass on and continue the legacy far easier with people that have been through the system. What about the idea of coaches with leadership but at a lower grade? No, we'd look at all those areas, and I think, and I'll give you a great example, uh, Jason Rolls, who um, he ended up having two seasons with us. He left our club at the end of 2013. He returned back to his local area in the Wollongong area. He did one year captain coach and one year of a coach, and as Roy know, that's what used to happen. Players would retire and they'd go and captain coach, and it was a great, great apprenticeship. Then when there was an opening in 2016, we brought him back. So also, too, the, the, that model that Frank described also was very beneficial to the country teams, to the Bush teams. But now, of course, as soon as an NRL player retires, he joins the media. He doesn't go and play in the Bush, or very rarely does so. Yeah, I, I did not expect to hear that, actually. I'm pleasantly surprised, frankly. I guess the last thing that we can touch on is if either of you have any good business advice, if you wish you had it sooner, what would it be? I probably have to go back to the, the siege mentality that uh, it took me too late to realise that it only works for a certain period of time and that you've got to be positive. And uh, I remember passing that on to other coaches, but that was a piece of advice that was probably dawned on me a little late, too late. How about you, Frank? You know, we talk about X and O's in sport and business would be the same, I'd imagine. It's not about the X and O's. It's about getting the best out of your people. And there's different ways of getting the best out of people because your people are different, but I think that would be the, the best uh, advice that I've ever been given anyway. Well said. Thanks for listening today. Lead from the Side is made in partnership with Ample, and thanks to our sponsors. More information about the show and our guests can be found in the show notes. You can follow the show on Twitter or LinkedIn at Lead from the Side or myself on Twitter or LinkedIn at BallsOutPhD. If you want to contribute to the show, send us an email at leadfromtheside at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next time, and remember to lead from the side. <laughs>